From the University of Alabama's Culver House College of Business, It's Bama Means Business, a podcast that reveals amazing stories from those people who both inspire and make a difference in our community. On this special episode, hear from Zach Thomas, Director of Marketing and Communications at Culver House, as he interviews Robert Posen, former chairman of MSF Investment Management, a former executive at Fidelity Investments and Fidelity Management and Research Company, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and current senior lecturer at MIT's Sloan School of Business. My name is Zach Thomas, Director of Marketing and Communications at the Culver House College of Business here at the University of Alabama. Um, I'm introducing everyone here to uh, Bob Posen, who is joining us today to talk about some exciting news for the college and also about his new book, Remote Incorporated, How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are, out recently on Harper Business, imprint of HarperCollins. First, let me introduce you to our listeners, Bob. Um, you're an ex- distinguished, you've led a distinguished career in academia, business, and government, and you're currently a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Um, and you were formerly chairman of MFS Investment Management and executive at Fidelity Investments and Fidelity Management and Research Company. Furthermore, um, just so everyone knows that you've also served on a large number of boards and commissions, most notably the Security Exchange Commission's Committee to Improve Financial Reporting, the Leadership Council of the Tax Policy Center, and President George W. Bush's Commission to Strengthen Social Security, where you developed a progressive plan to make the system solvent. You're also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, You've also lent your expertise pretty broadly. You're a frequent contributor to the Financial Times, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Harvard Business Review. And you're also the author of several books beyond Remote Incorporate, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. So you're very accomplished, Bob. And um, before we get into our conversation, would you just like to tell me a little bit about some common themes throughout your career, some of your passions and work in life, a little bit about what, what drives you as an individual? Well, that's a complicated question, uh, Zach. What drives me is a few things. One is I have a drive for excellence. I would like to do a very good job in whatever I'm doing. Second of all, I have a real interest in innovation and in trying to push the frontiers. I've seen tremendous change in my time in the financial services industry. That's uh, what I teach at MIT Sloan. Third of all, I have an interest in people really showing integrity and uh, standing by their principles. And so those are probably the three things that are most important to me. That's very interesting. Um, I want to turn the conversation a little bit toward um, the recent gift that you made to our Madison Graduate School of Business. Can you tell me a little bit about this gift and the motivations behind it? Well, I have been uh, supportive of these uh, fellowships uh, as a way to train leaders in the future. And I was a trustee for many years of something called the Commonwealth Fund, which is actually a healthcare foundation in New York. And together uh, we established minority uh, fellowships at the Yale School of Management. And they've been a huge success. We, we recruited some really great people, and we know that they're going to get their degrees and go back to their communities and really be leaders there. So I've been looking to replicate that model in other places. And uh, I've looked at three different states in the South, 
Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama. And in each of them, uh, there was a business school. There is a business school that does a really good job of training leaders. At Alabama in particular, I can see that they have strong support from the local community. My idea is uh, that if we can uh, get two minority uh, leaders who will come and get an MBA at the University of Alabama, they'll go back to their communities in Alabama and they'll be leaders and uh, bring about whatever change is appropriate. So that's my basic idea. And, uh, you know, I'm very happy to be working together with the University of Alabama uh, in this area. And we're very grateful for your support. I know this program, uh, we're very excited about where things will go. Um, I know that there's students already in place right now um, that are benefiting from the gift. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very exciting thing across all boards. I know that, you know, the reception that we've received so far has been tremendous. And so as a message of gratitude, you know, we want to extend that to you because it really does mean a lot to the college and to our programs. You're entirely welcome. And I've been very uh, gratified by the response at the University of Alabama. They've been very supportive. And I know the program is going to be successful because the university is such a powerhouse within Alabama. do a great job at training minority leaders who go back to their communities in Alabama. That's what we really like to see. And that's what we hope to see too. I mean, just on a side note, we've we've made some announcements for different programs that promote and highlight diversity, that bring students from underrepresented populations, um, first generation students, making sure that they have the resources that they need. It's part. This is part of that whole portfolio, and um, you know, it's it helps us walk the walk, right? And so, you know, having this support from you, um, it's going to really help us do great things and help our students do great things. You know, I grew up in a a low-income family in a low-income community in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I was lucky enough to win a scholarship to Harvard. And uh, at that time, I had to get a loan and I had to get a job to work my way through college. And then I was lucky enough to uh, get another scholarship to go to Yale for graduate school. So I myself have benefited from these scholarships and you know, given what uh, my family situation is, I wouldn't have been able to do it without these scholarships. So I'm grateful for the support that I've given and I'm trying to give back to other students who uh, like me wouldn't have the financial resources to get these degrees without help from the outside. Now, let me ask you this. I mean, you, you've established support at other schools in the SEC at Ole Miss in Florida. Do you support other initiatives like this at other schools or in scholarships in different forms to promote and highlight diversity? Well, uh, no, the only other one that I've done is the one at Yale, which is the one I did first. So now there are a total of four schools and uh, the Yale uh, uh, program has been very successful. And um you know, hopefully these three schools will be successful. And then we can, if they are, as I think they will be, then we can build on that. That's great. Do you plan on coming down to uh, Alabama anytime soon to uh, see our campus? These days, it's a little hard to travel. Uh, but one of the things we'd hope to do is to bring together uh, the Posen scholars from 
all three of these schools and have a, a, like a day a conference or seminar. And uh, I don't know exactly where it will be held, but uh, that would be nice uh, when all this uh, blows over, hopefully, and uh, we're all back in uh, person to have an in-person conference where we can all meet. Right, right. Yeah, it's... That day might be coming soonish. We're still waiting for that all clear. I mean, it's a little ways away depending on where you're at. I'm teaching at MIT and they hope to come back fully in person on Labor Day, after Labor Day. And I hope they will. And I hope that will happen in Alabama too. I, th I think that's the case. Um, the directive right now is they're all being called back fully in person, you know, or depending on your circumstances, maybe you have an arrangement where you have to work remotely some, which leads us to our next part of our conversation. I really want to talk to you about your new book, Remote Incorporated, um, How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are. This is a really salient and topical book for the times. Um, so tell me a little bit about how did you come to write this book? Well, um, I wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Extreme Productivity which uh, grows out of my own personal experience as an executive uh, in how to organize my time and how to uh, think about uh, getting as much done as possible. And that book uh, has now been translated into 10 languages and it was a business bestseller. So I've been thinking about doing a sequel to it, talking to my publisher, Harper Collins. And then um, when the pandemic hit, uh, I teach a course uh, to executives at MIT called Maximizing Your Own Productivity. And I wanted to have somebody who had been working remotely come in and talk to the executives about how that was done. And uh, I had read a number of articles in the Wall Street Journal by a woman named Alexandra Samuel. And uh, she seemed to really know what she was doing. And she, uh, She's been working remotely for 20 or 30 years. So she, I, I recruited her as a guest lecturer uh, to my uh, exec course for executives, and she was a big hit. And I thought, well, this is what we ought to do the sequel on. We ought to do it on remote work and then the new hybrid environment, meaning partly remote and partly person. So we actually made a proposal to HarperCollins in July. They accepted it around August 1st. And they, were, they felt we really had to rush this book and really get it done as soon as possible. So we completed the book in November. We handed it to them. And you know we've, we've gone through galleys and everything. And then it was published in April. So in the publishing world, this is like near record time. Uh, so. We've taken our own advice and learned how to be productive remotely. And I've actually never met Alexandra in person. We've only dealt with each other remotely. She, she lives in Vancouver, uh, in Canada, British Columbia. Uh, she's got a doctorate in computer science uh, from Harvard. So she's a very smart uh, person. And uh, she, she writes really well. And we were able to sort of make the time zones work for us. So uh, she could uh, work late in the night, send me something. I'd get up in the morning, review it, edit it. 
and you know, three or four hours later, send it back to her just as she was getting up. So we managed to make the time zones work for us, which is one of the things we uh, recommend in this book. And it's, that's really incredible to hear that because you've established a new way of collaborating for yourself. And this is something you never had done before. Absolutely. So establishing new methods. I mean, we've all had to do it in the past year. Um, and a big part of working remotely is um, it, a lot of it's coming into how do we demonstrate performance, right? And in your book, you talk a little about hours and like counting of hours and you know, showing that you're working, right? Um, but you reject that, right? How do you reject the custom of counting hours? I'm really against the concept of counting hours. I think it's a relic of the industrial era when we used to have uh, assembly lines and there, the number of hours you put in was a good proxy for your productivity. But think about it. If you're a journalist now and you produce an article, you could spend two weeks on an article and it wouldn't be very good and your readers wouldn't like it, or you could spend three hours on an article and it'd be great. So your readers don't really care about how many hours you put in. They care about the results that you produce. So my whole approach is let's focus on the results and figure out what the results are that we want. And then if we can accomplish that, we can free people up. So we have this concept called success metrics. So if you and your boss can agree on this, these are the success metrics for this project. This is what we hope to achieve with this project, or this is what we hope to achieve by the end of the month. Then when you have an agreement with that, then it frees you up to work when and here, how and where you want to. As long as you're producing those results, that's what counts, not how many hours you put in. And that, that makes perfect sense in many different ways, right? Because we're not, it's not about, you know, sitting in a seat and just sitting in an office all day. It's all about, it's all about the work that we generate and the output that we're creating and being productive. So how do success metrics work? Come and walk me through this process of establishing them, best practices with them. Uh, okay. So, so let, let's think of a boss and a team of, of employees. So the typical situation in a company. So if the boss says, well, what I, we want to do this month is improve uh, customer service. Let's assume the boss, the team is geared to customer service. So my, my problem with that sort of objective is it's too vague. People don't know what that means. For some people, it might mean answering the phone more quickly. For other people, it might mean uh, reducing the number of problems that people have or solving their problems very quickly. For other people, it might mean making the customer more satisfied so they place more orders and they get, you get more revenue. So success metrics are an agreement negotiated between the boss and the team as to what exactly will improving customer service look like. What are we trying to achieve, let's say, at the end of the month? So we might have metrics like solve customer problems in less than a day, or generate more revenue, or go out and see more customers. So I'm not trying to say to you 
what those metrics are going to be. All I'm saying is you need to have them. And once you have them, then why does the boss care how many hours you put in? Boss is interested in your producing the results, these good results. So that frees you up to work the hours and the times and the places that are best for you, that are most efficient for you. It also frees you up so that you can take care of your family and your personal needs in a flexible way. Because again, the point is not to work nine to six. The point is to produce these results. And so if you're not working in a particular morning because you're going to your child's uh, dance recital, that's okay. It's irrelevant. The question is at the end of the week or the month, have you produced uh, the results that are consistent with the success metric? But that's how that system works. So it basically it's, it's for a lot of us, we all have different data points that we have to measure up to for our jobs, whether it's performing like X amount of publications or we're trying to deliver on, on X or Y, but maybe this is a new method that where if you're in a job where you never had to previously quantify productivity, if you're going remote, you obviously, you would need to. Yeah. So, implement so Zach, we should have a, a talk about your job. I mean, what are your success metrics? You want to produce a certain number of podcasts. You should want to reach a bigger and bigger audience. Uh, you might want to get uh, have some more discussion groups on campus, uh, off campus. It gives you, it gives you a way to clarify as to what your your concrete objectives are going to be and what you should be striving for. So success metrics work so many good ways. And one of the things it clarifies, just take your example as to, well, how do we know if you're successful as a PR person for University of Alabama? What sort of metrics are we going to look like, look at? And if we look at them together and we agree on them, I'm sure you'll you'll focus a lot more and we'll, we'll have a very clarifying discussion. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, I have my boss, I report to the Dean of the business school and we have my metrics and I try to meet them. And if there's a pinch point, I have to, you know, work that out. And, but obviously with the past year, I've had to really double down on where are the different data points in my work and how can I measure what I'm doing and my productivity to explain like, this is how I'm allocating my time and delivering upon the many needs of the school. So I really see a lot of need for something like this across the board, not just, you know, in customer service, but, you know, in many different sectors where we have to articulate and put together, you know, a a foundation of like, this is how we do our jobs. This is how we're effective, especially when we're not able to have this tactile relationship with someone at the adjacent office, right? If my coworkers and my colleagues are distributed, well, you know, how can I know that, we're meeting the goals of the organization. So this is very interesting to me just because, I mean, we've all been working remotely for the past year and I I anticipate there'll be some elements of this going forward, even though we are being called back here on this university to mostly full-time in-person work. Um, I'm really interested in hearing a little bit about managing remote employees. So as a manager myself, I have my strategies and I think they've, they've worked well enough but maybe hear from you a little bit about um, 
best practices, special strategies for um, managing a distributor workforce? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that's a, in general, I've found that managers are really struggling uh, with remote workers and that they're going to have to be much more proactive as managers and much more explicit. So I would start with the first thing is that the manager of a remote team should establish what I call common norms or standards, um, which really go to the expectations of people, the expectations about when you're gonna be on and accessible. Are you expected to be on 24 uh, you know, hours a day or are you expected to be on certain hours? Are you expected to respond to messages and emails in a certain amount of time? What are the expectations of the boss for the way in which you conduct yourself as a team? So that's the beginning point. Then a second thing is I want to see uh, managers have team meetings every week. But my concern is most of the team meetings I've seen are backward looking. They're essentially people reporting about what they did in the last week. I'm more interested in forward-looking meetings, which people can talk about what are they planning to do in the upcoming week and solicit help from their colleagues and their boss as to analytic problems and contacts, whatever might be uh, helpful. They, I'm not against reporting on what you've done, but that can be done by email. You don't need to have a meeting for that. Third thing is, I. I think if you're a manager of a remote team, really need to check in individually with them at least once a week. We know that a lot of people who work remotely feel socially isolated. They may feel like left out. Some of them may be even a little depressed. So you wanna, the manager needs to talk to them, find out how they're doing, uh, not just in the business sense, but also personally. And <clears throat> Another thing we like to see is we like to see what we call social bonding events where the manager organizes things where people come together and they're not discussing business. So they can have games, they can have cocktail hours. Some people have been very creative, like sending food uh, uh, materials to all their teams and then having a joint cooking lesson. And so that's a lot of fun. But there is a big potential loss in remote teams of losing the culture, the culture that holds teams together. And so you have to work on that. And finally, performance reviews. Um, I've always been against performance reviews that are done on an annual basis. They're very formalistic. Uh, the results get put into some sort of circular file. Nobody really looks at them. What I want is performance feedback after every large project and at least once a quarter. And they should be based on these success metrics that we've just talked about so that the boss is sitting down with an individual and they're reviewing. Well, here's the success metrics we had for the project. I want to congratulate you on all the good work you've done and all the metrics that were met. And here are a few that weren't met. 
So let's figure out what the problems were. And so we're going to prevent those problems from reoccurring. So those are some of the best practices that managers of remote teams can use. But those practices really are things that managers should use even when they come back to the office. So they may be more challenging and more needed in, in a remote context, but they're important across the board. Right. It's awesome adopting new ways of thinking about how we manage people, how we manage our own workflows. Um, I've got your book right here, and it's been very, very helpful for me as a manager myself and having a distributed tr team that's we see each other frequently, but not every day um, to understand just like, well, as a supervisor, this is my responsibility, but also as someone who reports to somebody else, this is also my responsibility in how I tell them how I'm producing and any issues that I'm having. Um, how can I better support them in a way that they help support me? So it's very become like a very reciprocal relationship. And it's just a very exciting thing to just hear about this all coming together, especially in a time where we've all had to live the experience. Um, and so this is, it offers a lot of lessons for going forward. Um, you mentioned something about um, meetings and excessive meetings and messaging outside of what would be considered like the normal bounds of office hours. How do we how do we cope with that? Sometimes I'm always well, when I say this, sometimes I always ask myself like, this meeting that I'm being invited to, this could have just been an email or a phone call, right? How do we deal with this? Well, uh, I would say the two biggest time things that people have are meetings and excessive messages. So let's start with meetings. First thing I recommend is that when someone invites you to a meeting, you ask for the agenda. And that gives you a good sense of whether or not this meeting is gonna be worthwhile. Because quite frankly, there are lots of meetings that really aren't worthwhile. The second thing is you ought to try to keep the number of people down in any meeting, you can to five or six. Uh, especially when you have Zoom and video conferencing, you know, sometimes these meetings go up to 15, 20, 30 people. There's a lot of scientific evidence that after you get over 10, they really cease to be functional and they're really uh, not very good. Third thing is that um, you need closure meetings. At the end of the meeting, you really need someone to say, what have we decided? What are the next steps? and who's going to take them. And finally, you got to keep meetings short. When I was president of Fidelity, I said no meeting over 90 minutes, and preferably under 60 minutes. Now you see lots of people who just schedule themselves back-to-back -back meetings, just one hour after another, and that's really crazy. So the team manager can say no meeting more than 45 minutes, so at least you have 15 minutes after every meeting to have a chance to regroup, um, have something to eat, relax a little, and re-energize. So those are some of the points about meetings that we recommend. The book, as you say, is very practical, and it's really filled with these practical suggestions. And at the end of every chapter, we do have a chapter of meetings, we give you takeaways. So. Here's, here's what you need to do and apply it right now. And I think that's a, that's it's inspirational in a way for that. Um, and I have to also remind myself too, is like, 
I want to schedule a meeting with my team. Well, we use Basecamp as a tool for managing projects in our shop, right? It's like, why don't we just turn this into a chat? And if uh, one of my colleagues is busy because she's got her children at home, I've had my children at home too during most of the pandemic, right? And even during the work week, they're, they get one of them gets home at three o'clock. It's like, well, I still have to get some stuff done. So I'll get to you at when she goes to bed, right? So this is like trying to manage all these different projects and working in a not strictly eight to five or nine to six workday. Um, yeah, there's a fancy word for it it's called asynchronous, which means not at the same time. And so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of project work that can be done where it's divided up into individual projects. People do those individually. You don't have to be in a meeting every every hour to deal with that. In fact, being in a meeting is really diverting them from doing the work. Mm -hmm. That's that's very true. Um, tell me a little bit about like the prospect for the future. Uh, do you think that organizations, bureaucracies, do you think that we're going to continue this remote work, or do you think it's going back to the office or some kind of something between in the middle there? Well, I think it's pretty clear that for most organizations, it'll be hybrid and it will be partly remote and partly in the office. And we say every organization, every team should aim for what we call the optimal uh, combination. We call it the Goldilocks plan. Not too much remote work and not too little. But it takes a lot of analysis to figure out for each team within each organization, what's the optimal uh, Goldilocks plan? I say that teams as this. Some people have argued that we should give everyone individual choice. And I'm all for individual choice to the extent feasible. But at some point, you've really got to shift to teams. If you have a team, you can't have some people coming in Mondays and Wednesdays and other people coming in Tuesdays and Thursdays, you need to have everybody on the team coming on them, coming in on the same days. The other thing is, if you think about any organization, it's really a conglomeration of teams. I used to run financial services organization. There's a investment analyst group. There's a marketing group. There's a customer service group. There's a tech group. So the answer as to what the optimal combination may be very different. Uh, depending on what team. In the book, we suggest a number of factors that each team leader and the team should look at. The first is the function of the team. How much of the work can be done individually where you need extended periods of concentration? So that militates toward being at home. On the other hand, if you need collaborative work, if you have a lot of brainstorming, you'll probably want to do that in person in the office. Second factor we call location, which is, you know, how is, uh, how, how is the office distributed? If you're all around, um, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, then, you know, it's easy to get into the office and have meetings. But if you have an hour and a half commute each way, as you do in New York City, well then, that's gonna be an important factor of going for um, spending more days at home. The third thing is the organization. How is the organization structured? What are the teams in the organization? How are each of the teams organized? And a fourth factor is culture. 
I believe strongly that you need some degree of in-person meetings to promote and maintain your culture. I especially think when you onboard people, you have to ask them to come in as much as possible uh, to the office, even if later on, they're gonna be mainly remote. And the last thing is scheduling, which is just the practical question of how do you get everybody to be in the times you want them to work together to actually be working together. So they either have to be in the office on the same days or everybody has to be online at uh, the same hours. So we put this acronym called FLOCK, F-L-O-C-S, and that's function, location, organization, culture, and scheduling. So that's what we say. You look at all those five factors and you apply it to your team, and then you come up with your Goldilocks plan. That's that's really incredible here, just like how it boiled down to a almost it's almost formulaic in a way, right? Obviously, it's an it's a um, it's an organic thing that can take shape and it ebbs and flows or evolves depending. Yeah, it's, but but one thing, uh, Zach, that's different is you see a lot of CEOs making these pronouncements, like everybody in our company needs to come in four days a week, or everybody in our company is going to be remote four days a week. In my mind, that's not a really useful way to do it, to have one rule, set of rules that apply across all teams in an organization. Let's admit it, you know, and I'm sure it's true at the university, there's, there are very different functions that are being done, and very different teams. And so what you, what you come up with for your marketing communications team may be very different than what, say, the IT group does at the university. That, that should be very differently configured. So I, I think most CEOs should realize that, you know, these company-wide pronouncements aren't necessarily the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And also, I think I, I totally am in agreement with just how that all that, that all that assembles, basically, that you have to look at the team, you have to look at the work that's being produced. I mean, for and anecdotally, our team is that, uh, you know, we were coming, let's say back in the earlier part of the spring, we'd be in two days a week. And this were our collaboration sessions where we'd bounce ideas off of each other, plan work outward, figure out what we needed to accomplish and just have those personal relationships kind of just reestablish them in a way that they didn't foster or grow over the past year. But then on the days I'll be at home, that's like, well, I'm going to get a lot of writing done. That's yeah, what I'd get. Every, get a lot all of the concentrated work done. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I met with a company, a national company, who said their people are scattered all around the country. So they want to bring their senior management team in, 10 people, to a central location near Chicago for a week every month. And that's when they're going to make all their big decisions. So if they have people distributed over a large uh, uh set of locations, that may be a, a, a more realistic way of doing it. And then you have the global companies for people all around the world. And so they need to come together probably once or twice a year just to have the sort of personal relations that you're talking about. So that's much more challenging for a global company. Right. Well, you, I think you hear a lot about companies that 
their workforce after everyone went remote, they said, well, I'm going to move away from Silicon Valley because I can't afford to buy a house here. And I'll move to someplace else across the United States or even across the globe because I can do my work from afar. And now they might be getting called back to the office. That I guess that creates a tension and they need to figure that all out. But um, I guess right now it's like the open question is what do we do with all this workspace and um, real estate? I think I think commercial real estate in places like San Francisco and New York, uh, they're gonna they're gonna have some troubling years over the next few years because uh, a lot of those people are not gonna be working there uh, five days a week. Maybe you could have a rotation of two teams that are coming on week a month, but. Uh, there's probably too much office space in San Francisco and New York. But for cities like Birmingham, Alabama, uh, or Tampa, Florida, uh, it's a great it's a great boom. And Austin, Texas is probably the biggest boom. Uh, but I think it's across the board. Boise, Idaho is booming. Uh, Reno, stuff. Nevada is booming. So these are all places that aren't California. That's their main thing. They're not California. It's, there's an exodus of very highly paid, smart, tech-capable people. They're all going to places across the country. They said, "Well, I want to live in, I want to live in the mountains, or I want to live um, closer to my folks, and I can get my work done." And I've been able to prove it over the past year. And I think that's what your book really shows: is that I could be anywhere in the world and be productive and create a team and deliver upon results no matter where I'm at. And I, it's just, it's a great book. It's very of the times. And I'm just so excited that you've been able to talk with us today about it. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I hope the book is useful to a lot of people. And uh, as you say, you know, um, working remotely is going to, at least part of the week is going to be true for most workers. I, I doubt whether most people are going to come back five days to the office. Of course, there are people who have run specialized machines or they're in transportation. Those people have to be there. But if you have a choice, most uh, employees wanna be at home two or three days a week. And uh, I think that's what's gonna happen. It's this hybrid that's gonna be the way of the future. And so on that note, um, I'd really just like to um, conclude our conversation today. Um, this has been a tremendous opportunity to hear from you, Bob. Um, we're just so excited for all of this. I mean, we're just grateful for the gift that you've presented to our Manderson Graduate School of Business to support MBA student diversity. And it's just a very interesting thing to talk with you about an area that's evolving, uh, working remotely and growing a distributed workforce and working asynchronously. So this is just, I'm very grateful for your time here today, Bob. Well, I'm, I'm glad to share it with you. And hopefully, Zach, uh, we'll have a chance to meet in person, uh, maybe in the fall or maybe next year and uh, have a meal together. And I, I look forward to that. That'd be a lot of fun. I look forward to it, too. And um, thank you so much again. You just heard from Zach Thomas, Director of Marketing and Communications at Culver House, and Robert Posen, former business executive and senior lecturer at MIT's Sloan School of Business. And thanks so much for listening to Bama Means Business. If you're not a subscriber, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get yours. And of course, check out our website, 
at culverhouse.ua.edu to learn more about the Culver House College of Business and what it has to offer. Roll Tide. <laughs>